0: Hello and welcome to Office Hours. If you're just joining us on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at global There you can submit the questions that drive our show and um, become the producers of where we go in our show. Saturday is basically our education day. We have our focus on an education topic at the end of the show. Today, we're talking about presentations. Dave Trotman's gonna take us into that topic so that we can anticipate all the things that might go wrong when we're trying to look our best as a presenter. TJ, what do we have?
1: Thank you, Josh. Our first question today comes from Douglas Carmichael who asks, I had the chance to try out an original Stream Deck at Best Buy, and I noticed that the buttons had a rather mushy touch when pressed, and not the authoritative click I'd expect. Have the newer Stream Decks changed that? Kelly, you want to lead
0: us off?
2: Sure. The answer is no. They are not less mushy. They are just soft and gushy and the new stream deck plus in fact is even worse because the buttons for some reason they've decided to tool them larger which means that there's more angular travel as you push them just a, a nightmare but it's something that i've gotten used to i haven't had any problems in terms of mechanically pressing them and activating them so maybe it's just a preference you can get over if you decide to go the stream deck route
3: nigel yeah, like Keely, I've got the the first and the third generation. I don't have the Mark II in the middle, um, but I do have the the original and I have the Plus. And um, you aren't going to get the 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 click that you necessarily want. You're going to get a soft touch. Uh, that's one of the reasons why some of us worry about them because we're not always sure we we really got the traction on it. The like, Keely also on the on the new one, the plus. Not only are they much louder, uh, much larger, they seem much louder. So I'm much more sensitive about pressing that one with the mic open. Courtney.
4: Yes, by design, they're all elastomeric buttons, so you're never going to hear that uh, little mechanical pl- click of a mechanical switch because of the LCD behind the clear button, and the clear button is over a little conductive elastomeric. And it depends on the angles and the thickness of that elastomeric that pops up and down as to, you know, what the feel, the tactile feel is. And they may change slightly if they change suppliers of that uh, clear overlay, but it's not going to change much. And it's never going to click like a clickety-click like a, a, um, a micro switch. Jeffrey.
5: Yeah, that's what I was going to say is you have a little three-inch LED, LED screen right behind and the clear buttons are the, what uh, basically uh, focusing in on a specific area of the LCD screen. So you're basically touching, not a touch screen. Uh, as Courtney uh, explained, it is a conductive conductive chiclet type key that uh, you're pressing down. And uh, on the back plate of the front face plate, that's where you're going to have the uh, the conduction happen. And that's how you get the, if you need a clicky key, then you build something like an X keys. Uh, and then you can get uh, whatever type of key you want. Mitchell.
6: i pressed many a button in my time, particularly in radio. And uh, the interesting thing about it is they had to be lighted lit. Um, and they also had to be silent. And uh, I will admit, my Stream Deck makes a little bit of a mini thud when I hit it. Um, and it's not a uh, precise you know, commanding click uh, but uh, on my uh, Model 205 Studio Technologies, I do get a bit of a click. But the difference is the 205 has an LED behind it, and the Stream Deck has the uh, uh, the LCD, as, as previously noted.
0: I think you're being modest, Mitchell. I think you've worn a few buttons out in your time. I did,
6: and I had to replace them uh, on my uh, Studio Technologies last night, so I said... How, many, how often do you hit that button? And I said, every time I talk, oh, it's supposed to be left on. I said, can't do it here. Let's go to our next question.
1: Our next question is from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas, who wants to know, what determines if you make the jump from HDMI cables to SDI cables?
0: Jesse.
2: Uh,
7: yeah, a few things. One is uh, distance. So HDMI cable really only run 30 feet, reliably. 50 feet is kind of really pushing the limit unless you have a very, very high quality uh, and expensive or move to optical uh, HDMI cable. And also, uh, so that's one you know benefit for SDI is that you can run it a lot longer. Um, also, SDI has a locking connector, so it's not going to pop out as easily and you can stack them together more densely. And then uh, you can course, make your own SDI cables. Um, so if you're in a position where you have to make replacement cables or longer cables or uh, different types of connectors, then SDI is the way to go there, too.
0: So have Mitchell's comment, and then Courtney.
7: Yeah, Jesse covered just about everything that I could
6: think of. Um, I usually use the time warp uh, dance to determine how long the cable can be before it gets interfered with doing the time warp. Jump to the left.
4: Courtney? Uh, yeah just to so cover most of it there are longer cables uh, there's some also skinnier cables uh, in hdmi um, that are called red Mirror. they have chips built into the connectors that amplify the signal along the way or impedance balance them so that they're the correct impedance for the length of the cable um, the transition is going to determine you know what what may determine it is what are the inputs and outputs and all the equipment you want to connect and if the inputs and outputs are b and c's sdi then you probably ought to go all with SDI rather than have converters on either end. So uh, you have to determine uh, if you're going to put converters to go from HDMI to SDI, then it'd be better to change out all your equipment to all SDI rather than go through converters all the time uh, to get to the longer distances. John Pretto.
5: It would be interesting to see the electrical characteristics of HDMI and SDI three to five to 10 years from now, as HDMI moves into 8, 8K, 12K, and can SDI keep up at those levels, or should we just all move to Cat 8 cable? We'll see what happens.
3: Nigel? Yeah, I just wanted to build on what Courtney said. For most of us, we are all HDMI. At least my studio is all HDMI. So going to SDI is not a question of changing a cable. It's, it's sort of changing every piece of equipment I've got or buying adapters. And I actually looked at the cost, and you know, when the original SDI version of the ATEM came out, we all looked at that. And you're gonna spend a lot of money on converters if everything is HDMI. So one of the things I would have think, the first thing is, what's your equipment?
6: Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I just had a jump in. Uh, Gerald Undun on the Condor Blue website talks about HDMI. They're not all the same. Some are better than others. It might have something to do with the wiring. Uh, or the quality of the uh, the product. So some cables may work up to thirty feet, some may not. It just um, make sure you understand before you start spending lots of money on them. And also, I've never had an HD. I, I've never had an SDI cable fall out of the back of a piece of equipment. It's always been an HDMI to get pulled out somehow. Cardi?
4: Another thing to consider we haven't discussed so far is the uh, handshake required on HDMI. All HDMI requires an encryption HDCP check, and a handshake check, uh, so the equipment has to talk back and forth to each other. And uh, SDI doesn't require that, so if you need to switch quickly between uh, inputs, HDMI is always going to go black for a few seconds while it negotiates the resolution and everything, and then it comes back on. So SDI, if you need to have some quick switching or, or matrix routing, is a lot easier to do with SDI than it is to do with HDMI. So if you're going to do any... Routing stuff, SDI would be the way to go.
8: Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I think most of it's been covered. I wanted to pull Greg Gibson's comment in from the chat. He, him and I, we did a uh, event for uh, the Idlesons where it was a pretty high-end wedding, and uh, he probably brought in eight at least 300-foot HDMI cables. One of the things you got to be careful of if you do go the HDMI route is that they say source and destination on them. So if you run a cable 300 feet all the way down an aisle through bushes and all that, you don't want to rerun it. So make sure that the, sort, or through a wall would be the worst, uh, that those uh, HD, HDMI fiber optic cables uh, are being used with the correct ends because they will uh, not work, as you'll quickly find out. But uh, I'm a fan now. Before I was like, I bought them when they first came out and they were super expensive. And now they're dirt cheap compared to what they were. So they're about a third of the price. So they're, they're no longer, uh, I think I paid 189 bucks and now they're like $60. So for the same 300 foot cable. So I'm a fan. And then there is uh, one point, HDMI 1.3 or 2.0. got to be careful if you're using uh, 4K and you're trying to use older HDMI cables. A lot of those, I just wind up throwing them out because uh, it's so super frustrating to be somewhere on a gig and you pull out a cable that is the older version. So there are different versions of HDMI, so you want to be careful. Probably
0: have a whole second hour on cabling. It uh, touches everything that we do. Let's go to our next question.
1: Graham Cardwell from Belfast, Northern Ireland, is up next with, I need to do a very simple one-off 2D map of my property. I have some official mapping and need to do and need to amend that with my own survey. As a former civil in, civil engineer, I have the CAD skills, if a little rusty, and I'm looking for a free CAD program for the Mac.
7: I think Jesse and Dave are here to help you out. Yeah, uh, there's a cool program uh, called Draw.io, and it's you can actually run it both on the cloud and on your local machine. Um, it's kind of nice because it all it uh, integrates with Dropbox and um, Google Drive and uh, OneDrive, something like that. So uh, the deal there is that um, it can't import DWG files directly from CAD. You have to convert them to VSDX, which is a Visio format. Um, But once you have it in VSDX, you can import and export um, in that application. So I've used that quite a bit in the last few years. It's pretty handy. Um, It's called draw.io. I think it used to be called diagrams.net, but they changed the name.
9: Uh, Dave? Well, um, I'm not a CAD guy, so I don't have any idea what free CAD software there is out there. So great that Jesse points that out. I'm a guy who uses OmniGraphle whenever I want to diagram something. OmniGraphle is part of the Omni family of apps, and there's lots of different ones. But Graphle is good for drawing diagrams and layouts and uh, seating arrangements. It does, there's a lot of templates for it. I've had to make uh, measurement diagrams for uh, property lines and all the rest in my dealings with the city. And every time we have a project in our neighborhood, I have to submit, you know, detailed stuff. And I rely on OmniGraffle to do it for me because when I make a new document and start my drawings, I set the scale and then I can set the increments on my rulers. And the increments go into miles or kilometers, whichever, you know, all the way from pixels up to kilometers. And the um, scaling on it is customized. You can decide if you want 130 to 1 or if you just want 1.3 to 1 uh then the diagram itself when you're drawing a line has markers as to how long your line is and then you can put labels on them after you've got them the length you like and your diagram looks like you did it in cad but you didn't Uh, so i think it's about 50 dollars for omni and you can download it either from the mac app store or go to omni software and get that but yeah that's my recommendation it also does many layers so you can lock layers and uh, have uh, illustrations or uh, other information that go with it. That all of this being editable in its own in its own way. Uh, it has a lot of templates for architectural drawings and for uh, wiring diagrams and electronic layouts. And I think that's why Alex uh, uses it a lot, is he does all his layouts with that. And you you can put line measurements on it so that you know how far a run is going to be.
0: All right. Hopefully, Graham, there's something there for you. Let's go to our next
1: question. Next question comes from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada, who asks, we are putting together an e-learning course on introduction to insurance for new hires. Part of the course needs to include terms and definitions. Would you build these as a separate lesson or integrate in the flow of the learning as the terms come along?
10: Uh, Dr. Clark. John, I think that um, if you build it as a separate lesson, it will be the most boring lesson imaginable. At least that's my experience with similar uh, trainings that involve going through a list of terms and definitions. So I suggest you work them in as you go in context. And um, additionally, I would supply your learners with uh, some kind of a graphic that shows the terms that you believe are the key terms um, graphically displayed in relation to some kind of a a graphic that shows the the flow of the insurance process. uh, So that in a sense, if I'm a student, I can use that as a kind of a checklist. And as we encounter each new term, and the uh, training defines it, um, it also shows where it fits in a larger graphic picture of the insurance process. Kelly, can you add to that?
2: Uh, barely, because Dr. Clark really covered that very well. I think that the only thing I would try and something that I've been experimenting with is being able to use uh, digital references. So if there's a, for example, rule book uh, because i 'm i uh, 'm a field hockey umpire educator i 'm often dealing with the rule book and referring back to the definitions that are at the front of the book are very helpful so I have built a tool on my website where people can float from the definition that 's in the rule and the discussion of a particular scenario flip to the rule and then come back and I think that ability to really couch as Dr. Clark was saying the definition with the context of the concept that you 're trying to in part is a much more powerful way to learn. I would not want to keep that separate at all for exactly the reasons that he stated.
4: Pardon? Yeah, I'm old school and the things mentioned were really great. The, I, I really like the idea of the uh, graphical display of how things, uh, different insurance types relate and so on. But I would publish a glossary, an old fashioned glossary, an alphabetical list of terms and their definitions and give it to all the students at the beginning of the class. And if it's involved in a digital lesson plan or a web based lesson plan, I'd always put hyperlinks within the text, the teaching text of the individual insurance lessons to the glossary for any terms that are contained in the glossary so that they can get a fuller definition. If they don't understand what you're talking about, uh, the hyperlink will link them directly to the definition in the glossary.
0: Thank you. I feel that we've given a lot of information there and it's one of the benefits of uh, having our educators here on Saturday. Of course, we are all anticipating our second hour topic, but um, it's really education day. So feel free to take advantage of the, the knowledge here uh, on the panel. Um, you know, education is not just about K through 12 or college, but building co- uh, courses or, edu- you know, educating or just training uh, people all are involved in topics of education. So feel free producers to put your questions about that or about our typical tech and media questions. Let's go to our next question.
1: Healy Dunn from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I need to wean myself off this terrible Elgato key light, but have space restrictions on, and a moving rig. What alternatives to large soft boxes are out there that can still make me look
5: fabulous? Jeffrey, I got two uh, two options for you, especially if you want to keep on using the Stream Deck uh, for the uh, lights. First one is the Neewer. It's the GL1 light, and basically that's going to be a, a slightly little bit bigger than what you would have with the Elgato Key Light. It's still got that same tabletop uh, mounting system on it, uh, and then uh, Neewer is working on putting together— yeah, that's how you say it, Neewer—and uh, uh, they're they're putting together an app that, and uh, you can also get the Stream Deck plug-in download, uh, you do need to install the app into the computer for the uh, Stream Deck to work on that, but it will give you a, like, 3,000 Kelvin to 5,600 Kelvin, I believe is the numbers on that. On another uh, another brand is uh, the Lytra, which now Logitech owns. They have the Lytra Beam, which is actually a line, uh, a straight Uh, Beam that you can uh, turn vertically or horizontally, so you can put it on the side of your monitors. You can put it above your monitors. Uh, You could work. You could get four of them work all the way around the monitors. And then once again, they have a uh, they have a daylight versus uh, uh, or outside versus inside look, Kelvin wise that you can uh, run from there. That's also app controlled and uh, sets right on top of the desk. John, help us out you see that handsome fellow there named guy cochran he owns a place called DVEStore.com store.com and that's our preferred vendor for all things lights call him and he'll hook you up have fun go ahead
0: mitchell uh
6: keely i feel your pain because i need everything i can to make my face look halfway decent and presentable um what i do is uh the larger the softbox is, the better. That's the that's the the thing you have to fight here because what you want is uh, a large diffused life source to hit you and then do a little bit of a wrap around your face, and that's what gets it. I use a uh, a Lightworks. Ugh, let me hold this camera up here. Um, it's a light panel, excuse me, uh, asterisk softbox, and you can't see much other than a big white square, so sorry about that. But uh, what's unique about it is that the image that's the light that's coming off it is very very soft, which is very flattering to the face. And over here, I've got some uh, nan lights, and what they do, which is kind of cool, and these are smaller, is that they put perimeter LEDs inside the frame of the uh, the light fixture, which causes the light to come out and then bounce around inside the box before it comes out again. And uh, these are much cheaper and much uh, less expensive, maybe around two hundred dollars. Uh, for them. So, what you want is a lot of soft light, and uh, you want it to, to wrap around your face as much as possible. TJ,
1: I'm using a light that Jeffrey recommended uh, a couple of years ago. It's uh, called uh, made by Fossetan. That was the brand name. It has a little remote control that can control up to four lights, and you can adjust the intensity and the color. It's a, sort of a bi-color light. And if I can get my camera to behave here, um, I have it mounted on a magic arm that um, is actually attached to a visa pole that is attached to my desk. And um, it, it only weighs like maybe two pounds or so. I did build myself a foam core egg crate um, on it so that to, to keep the light from spilling all over to get it a little more directional for me. Um, but... Um, it's light and uh, attaches well with the magic arm and would be stable.
8: Good, Guy? Yeah, lots of great suggestions. It, it really depends on budget and portability. If you're going to be taking these lights somewhere else or if you're just going to dedicate them to the studio, uh, a lot of the lights that we see moving out the door right now, because we have a, a store and we have people that come in and test these things out, are the Aperture lights. So Aperture seems to be heating up the market. They've been really just. Uh, Doing, doing great demos and putting these lights in the hands of uh, a lot of folks that uh, show people how to use them. Uh, I'm just using a couple of ring lights. We, we've made these, so I actually tested a lot of different diffusion plates and we picked one that made these really soft. And then I'm using an Aperture P300, which is overkill. It's a portable light, but it's expensive because it, it'll do all, all the colors of the rainbow. But I wanted to show you what it looks like if I turn off that light. So here's what those two ring lights are doing. So they're just giving me a, like a little kiss. Of, it's a light here on this side, and then uh, you can see what's happening on this side. And then way back down there is a, a blue um, mix panel light that's adding that little bit of color. You can't see that light, but yeah, here's, here's the one here. And then there's the other one over there. So pretty simple setup. Uh, I would wanna lug all this stuff around. So there is another manufacturer called uh, Westcott that has these portable lights and they're really thin. So for you, if you're really concerned about space, these things just fold right up. Uh, so those are worth looking at, and westcott 's not the only manufacturer for these uh, so you pay a premium for portability and also for the ability to operate these on battery so with uh, LED lights being pretty low consumption uh, devices nowadays, depending on how how big you go because this one 's a you can go one by one or a two by uh, one so I mean you get up there pretty pretty quickly when you go into like the one by three, which is a thousand ninety nine and then they do have things like egg crates and uh, the ability to uh, shape the light, as others have said, like here you can see one with the a on, which would allow you to modify that light, put it where you want. Because that's one of the hardest things to do is get good soft light, so uh, and have it direction, have it be directional. So uh, those are things to look at. I'd be looking at samples and videos, just you know, do a little more homework. I mean, you're doing the right thing by asking here, um, and if you have more questions, I could jump into a uh, to after hours or show you how some of these work and how big they are, how heavy they are.
4: That Courtney. Yeah, I agree with uh, Jeffrey. who Was on uh, first described the Niwar panels, and these are really thin. They come. You can get the package like this that has uh, uh, desk type clamps on it, uh, and it has a remote control. They're bicolor, so they can balance them to match the daylight in the room, if it's or tungsten in the room, and you can. They're all dimmable and dimmable, remote controllable from the remote control. So uh, that's kind of important to have since the controls are on the back of the lights themselves. So you'd have to get up from the light to go adjust it. And if you're a one man, one person band, there, uh, the remote control makes that easier to do while you're looking at your image and not have to get up and go back and get up and go back. It also comes with that portable uh, carrying case. Uh, For a couple of hundred bucks and $40 off. So I guess about 160 bucks gets you two big lights. And that's what I'm using now. Only I'm only using one because two was overkill for my fat face.
0: Yeah. Lots of uh, helpful advice. Um, Lighting is very important in the scale of things. Oftentimes people tend to put their cameras above their lighting. Not so much. You can make a half decent camera look fantastic with the lighting and no camera works without light. So uh, feel free to um, put, your, uh, put your questions in about how to, uh, how to best uh, use your gear. Um, we can actually spend a whole second hour on the topic. And uh, as people, I noticed uh, as they were showing their behind the scenes, um, we might even be having some, uh, some studio uh, tours later, some behind the scenes. So tune into that for a second hour close to you. Let's go to our next question.
1: G. Asher from Minneapolis, Minnesota, wants to know: Two of my Aperture B7C bulbs will not still not do a firmware update. I'm using the latest version of the Citus Link app. I also did a reset on the lights. Anybody have any suggestions to trigger a firmware update?
0: Upsal Keeley.
2: I would love to be able to help, except what I did was, because I live dangerously, I decided to update mine. It's right behind me. It's casting this blurple light on my gray curtain here. And I thought, what better way to test it out than to do it right before office hour starts? And my update worked. So I don't know what to suggest. It sounds like you I know, TJ, you're shaking your head. But uh, other than all the standard reboots and all the things that you've already done, I don't know what the answer is, but in general, I've been really frustrated by all of the lights, whether it's Nanlite or it's, it's any of the other brands. The apps just don't have reliable connections. So once one is working, I just try not to touch it and try not to jinx anything.
0: And TJ, were you looking for a specific feature to update? Well, so what's
1: happening is um, two of the three lights I have don't even report any firmware update at all. They don't report that they are on AC power ever, when all three are actually on AC power. And, you know, that's part of the thing of the situs link, uh, or sorry, the, the aperture bulb. It'll run on battery, it has an internal battery. So, if you're, you know, doing a movie set or whatever, you want to put a, you know, a, a lamp in a, in a, a bulb in a lamp, you can, you know, do whatever without having to plug it in. But mine... Um, are all three on ac power but only one says it's on ac power and only that one is the one that actually shows any firmware the others when i go to update just give me the little spinning gear that says yep i'm reading and nothing reads any so i'm just trying to get it to re- properly report ac power if nothing else
0: okay well at least we've gotten your question out into the ether so maybe someone listening has had the similar problem and
5: hopefully has had a solve. Uh Jeffrey, you have something to add? Uh these are Edison bulbs, correct? And if so, then I would I would highly suggest uh trying uh to move them to a different uh a different light source and uh and possibly even uh something if you I know that it's it's kind of with this stuff it's kind of weird, but it might just not be getting enough power. Just move it to a different uh plug and see what happens plug it in i actually had a, a device yesterday it wasn't a bulb but uh it was it was trying to go through a firmware update but since the battery wasn't at 50% it just kept downloading the update saying that it installed the update and then rebooting and then saying that i needed the update again so th- there's some it's just sometimes you get some weird stuff coming from these uh these apps and and connections so uh that's that would be my suggestion is move it around and see where it, if it works from there Dave, have you come up with something?
9: No. Um, but I'm just wondering from a discussion held a couple of days ago about lights and remotes, uh, is the network a consideration? Uh, the Wi-Fi addresses, the uh, frequencies you're operating on, uh, maybe they're making a connection, but then it's identifying as the same bulb you just did. So. I don't know how the bulbs identify themselves to the firmware, and I don't know if they have serial numbers or any of that stuff because I don't use them. Uh, but it was just a thought while everyone was talking that maybe that's a communication problem and not necessarily a bulb issue. Okay, Courtney.
4: Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, is go to your router and monitor, monitor the connections that are coming through the router and plug and unplug each difficult light that you're having and see if it shows up on the router, if it's talking to your Wi-Fi. Uh, if it's if it has a MAC address or not, then it means it's communicating. If you don't see it, then it's got a communication problem, and it's not seeing the Wi-Fi router, and that's probably why it's not able to update. So just check and see, uh, unplug and plug each one in and look at the Wi-Fi routing table and uh, see if uh, d- different devices show up uh, and disappear every time you plug them in and unplug.
0: CJ? Uh,
1: yeah, these are actually Bluetooth connectivity on these. They aren't a Wi-Fi Um, And they do actually connect. I can actually turn them on and off. Um, So they are, they're actually
4: communicating with the app, but just won't do the firmware update. Hmm. So Bluetooth Bluetooth is local communications. To do the firmware update, it probably has to go to the internet somehow. How does it, uh, how does it, where do you put the firmware update to install it? Um, uh, It's all through the app. And the app is connected to Wi Fi then.
5: Correct. Uh, Jeffrey? Maybe the Bluetooth version. I've seen this happen before, especially when I, have, when I try to connect an older laptop to other devices. It's older Bluetooth in the laptop, so it doesn't really connect. So if it's trying to do an update to the Bluetooth, maybe it, it, even though it connects and does the basic functions, there might be a function that, uh, that it's not doing so I don't know if you have another mobile device that uh that has uh um older version of like a uh, older iPad or something like that that you could connect to and see if uh see if that helps on that. And guy.
8: Yeah, I happen to have one of these that was fresh in the box upstairs, so I ran pre-show, grabbed one, and the firmware is updating right now. But I'm using the app on the Mac Mini M1, and I know TJ didn't want to use the app on the computer. He wanted to use it on his phone because of the way that everything's set up. Uh, But it seems like you should be able to have, with the Collaborate feature, to have both. But mine's literally at 75%. Please keep this device within 10 feet of the fixture. It is, this thing is firmware updating right at the moment, but that is through the Mac Mini M1 through Bluetooth.
0: Okay, so there's some uh, ideas for you, um, TJ. Hopefully uh, us chewing on that has helped you to at least have some, some points to, to shake down. And um, if you would like to take advantage of our panel, as I look around, we have experts on teleprompters. We have our educators here, experts on streaming, cloud, music, Discord, community building. It's uh, your move, producers. Let's go to our next question.
1: Tony Mobley from Newman asks, can guys share what Oliver of Boink Software was demonstrating in After Hours last night? Cool. No.
8: <laughs> no, Just kidding. He did uh, mention it uh, on the show that he was going to be adding Zoom and Wow, what he showed was really cool. So basically, you'll be able to add multiple Zoom. So you have Mima Live, his software. He's the CEO of Boinks, and he's actually visiting the US. So he's staying at our friend John Ellison's place. And he's doing a show um, for a cable access uh, show called ACM in Santa Barbara next week. So he's going to be showing some of this stuff off. And uh, what he showed in After Hours was the ability to, uh, just like in Wirecast, Jeffrey, how we were doing those templates where we were adding multiple people. You can not only suck people in from Zoom. So he joined a meeting, a couple of us jumped in and we just he added us as sources and then hit that layout and boom, 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 you could say two up, four up, six up, uh, twelve up, maybe even sixteen. So he bought a yesterday he bought a brand new um, Apple Mac Mini, the uh 512 one for $12.99 at the local Apple store. And they're testing that now to see how many feeds that they can pull. But it's really exciting because if you think about uh, $60 a month, and you get the app. So you, you don't have to use Zoom ISO plus Wirecast. You would use, or Mimo Live or whatever, or vMix. You could now just have it in one app, and it's really cool. So I'm excited to see it come out into the wild. There's still some stuff to, to work out. But the other thing, I, I mean, I'm a Mimo Live user myself, so one of the things that I asked him was, can you take those feeds then and punch them back out through output So uh, for NDI? So you can just say, uh, add output, recording ad output streaming of individual ISO sources. So it's, it's really cool. It's, it's, uh, it's exciting. So that was nice of him to come into after hours and show us that
0: All right, fantastic. There's so many, um, exciting options for production and, um, a lot of excitement things, uh, a lot of exciting things happening in our community. Let's go to our next question.
1: Morgan Price from Victoria, British Columbia asks, I want to shift a two day writing workshop for adults writing their first academic papers to a virtual event. I'm leaning towards spreading out the writing and feedback cycle over a few weeks versus two days. Any experiences from the panel? Keeley.
2: My advice would be to not ignore the potential and the the power in bringing those people together for actual writing sessions. So I love the idea of the virtual event, and it's something that I, I do a lot of. But when people can actually gather in informal spaces, whether it's a Zoom or, as I would prefer, a Discord voice channel, and actually do the activity together, but in a silent way, maybe on a particular timer, whether it's a Pomodoro system or something else, giving people the chance to actually feel like they're being accountable to each other to get the work done. That's one of the biggest struggles with any of these kinds of workshops is to get people to do the work that they need to do over the period of time. So if you can have that little system in place and people can take those breaks as opportunities to ask the informal questions that maybe they don't feel are appropriate for the more formal instructional settings, I think that's a really great way to enrich that entire experience. and and get the people doing the work that they really need to get done.
10: Dr. Clark, this time you get to follow Keeley. I know uh, it's a hard act to follow. Um, I agree with Keeley that uh, there's magic in using a workshop to actually do the work. That's why it's called a workshop. And um, I like the idea of, as as Keeley described, doing things uh, simultaneously with your with your peers, whether it's virtual or in person. I have more experience with the in-person model. Uh, But then uh, what I suggest is that you uh, mix it up by having the initial work done simultaneously by the whole group, and then have an assignment that involves doing a second draft uh, on your own and then a reunion, whether it's in person or virtual, in which um, people report on their experience of and and are able to contrast the uh, simultaneous uh, together work with the individual work uh, between sessions, and um, share the the results of their uh, writing and compare it with some kind of a model that. Uh, is probably what you're shooting for some kind of a template that, um, hits all the post holes for a good, uh, academic paper. Courtney, like to weigh in.
4: Well, I'm not an educator, but I've certainly been a student, um, and a victim of educators. But I would say you're better off with a a two day event because knowing, uh, being a student, I know that if you're given two weeks, uh, You'll wait till the last day, the day before the first event, and you'll write it all then. Uh, so the procrastinators will not really take advantage of those multiple weeks times. And I think what was said earlier was uh, uh, by Chris is that uh, uh, having something written beforehand might be good. And then the first first day is criticism of the things that people have written, and then they do revisions. And present them on the second day and you analyze uh their revisions the other thing is just to make sure that chat gpt is down on the two days that you schedule
0: <laughs> uh ken anything from our chat
11: uh, yes josh um john snyder one of our educators uh mentions the flipped classroom model uh, and suggests that over a period of several weeks the lesson should be given first and then the students allowed to produce a rough draft and uh, bring that back for further discussion and questions from from and among the other students. And that allows uh, d- different ways of learning to take place. So he's got uh, uh, quite an example of the flipped classroom and makes a number of the points that Courtney just touched on.
0: All right. Thanks, John. And thanks, panel. Let's
1: go to our next question. James Fosling from Minneapolis, Minnesota is up next. TJ mentioned making his own foam core egg crate. Can you mention your construction and mounting to light? TJ? Uh, sure. So um, I, I will say first, it was a bit of a pain. Um, let me cut to a close up photograph I took here. And of any time, I've never needed a telestrator up until today, the first time I've actually needed a telestrator. Um, if you see on the left side of the image, you will see one of the sloppier joints. Um, I cut each, uh, I cut a a slot halfway through each piece of foam core so that they would interlock together, and then used a bit of hot glue, Uh, you can see some smudging on the bottom in the middle there, um, to hold the pieces um, uh, to the end frame, Uh, I basically built a um, box uh, out of foam core about two inches uh, tall, and then um, ran Uh, slats um, in 90 degrees the the long way and then across on the short way and so that the two kind of interlock with each other and it the spacing is about two inches um, on there and 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 i went with two inch depth to be able to control the angle um, so that it kind of projects out a little bit more from the light so that because it's such a wide panel the light would. I tried with a shorter, like a one-inch foam core, and it didn't work uh, because it. The light just still kept bleeding through on the angles. So, um, and then um, have a very, very sharp Exacto blade and a straight edge. And when you make the cuts, don't try to cut through all at once. Make several small cuts to kind of work your way through. Um, and then, uh, as for mounting to the light, gaffer tape.
8: Nice. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, well, I love American Ingenuity. Uh, I mean, that's, that's probably a lot of time, but when I look at the one that I have uh, on my light, it reminds me of there used to be a low-lighting webpage that showed all their different egg crates, and they were ridiculously expensive. Uh, this was about 20 years ago, and I was curious as to why. And They, they had different degrees, so they showed it... Uh, these animations of what happens when they put on a 50 degree a 90 degree I think there was a 120 but that you know these box sizes matter as to the quality of the light and how how much it spreads so it just depends on if you want to do you know iterizations to be able to get that look that you want so it could be a lot of trial and error and I guess this is where you you, you know you kind of get what you pay for if you want to Um, you know, let their engineers figure it out for you for your appropriate light. And then the whole portability thing, you know, it's nice to just fold it up. But I applaud you for making one. I've seen people make them on uh, Thingiverse. So for certain lights, like the the little... these little lights, uh, the aperture lights, people have made them for these that you could just print them out. But yeah, just be aware that how much light loss that you're going to get by it soaking up that, that excess because you're probably going to kill off a good 60% or not 60%. You'll, you'll be left with 60%. So 40% of your light will probably be killed off uh, when using an egg crate or softbox or and egg t- crate uh, diffusion. Oh, sorry. And TJ, um, where
0: is that light motivated from? Can you point out where, where that light's coming in and what other um, lighting you're complementing that with?
1: Yeah, so right now the light is up to my uh, upper right, so it's about 45 degrees uh, above if you if you took the horizon and the zenith, so it's about 45-degree angle up and just slightly off to the right. And then the reason I have the egg crate on is it back here, and my background would be very bright without that egg crate here. So that just creates this dark pool of shadow in the background to... Uh, basically help focus the light onto the brightest part of the image here which is my face and then I also wanted to uh, mention um, I saw and I don't know if they're still making um, but there was a a website I had seen and if I can find it I will um, throw it into the chat here Um, basically you could get custom made um, fabric egg crates Um, they would just you give them the dimensions and the lights and they would make them for you and then they would um, make fasteners. Because this is a fixed thing, it never moves. Uh, it's basically permanently attached to my desk here. So, um, you know, I, I was okay with a hard foam core um, and because nobody made a, a uh, egg crate for this particular light. But for like my soft boxes and stuff, I have Photoflex soft boxes for my, uh, my uh, photography. And those come with fabric egg crates. And they're so much nicer to set up than trying to deal with this particular hard egg crate.
0: Love to see that ingenuity. Yeah. Appreciate that. And that is one of the benefits of doing custom things. Um, You know, obviously if you have something, a solution that you want to take portable and set up and tear down um, yeah, you're probably not going to be able to construct something on your own. That's going to travel well, but if you have a custom solution for your own Uh, you know, your own circumstance, having the skills to be able to wield those materials into submission is helpful. Um, More to add, TJ? Uh,
1: Yeah, I forgot to mention the other light that is uh, lighting me is the sun. It's coming through blinds, and you can see um, right here, very little bright beam of light that's uh, sneaking through, and that's kind of what's doing the fill on the left-hand
0: side. Mitchell? Oh, can't hear you, Mitchell. Did you wear out your button again? I got muted.
6: Um, my question is, uh, why did they call them egg crates? Because they don't
1: do a very good job of holding eggs. Uh, they actually um, look closer to an egg crate than anything else. So they they, they sort of have a, a look of like the old-fashioned egg
0: crate. Think form not function mitchell yes you don't want to put all your egg crates in your okay never mind um so that's a fantastic review that we've had um and yet another uh example of our uh you know a uh, future behind the scenes review i guess it's good time as any to point out that if you would like to maybe be on the panel for a future behind the scenes review check out our email there you can join uh, what we're be uh joined here on the panel you can join our volunteer crew in the back and right now uh, we're stocking our uh, NAB uh, process and we're going to have a weekly process about that. So just a little little advertisement uh, of ways that you can engage office hours. Let's go to our next question.
1: Next up is Morgan Price from Victoria, British Columbia. Have any panelists connected Stream Deck or companion to Aperture's Citus Link app or other lighting apps?
0: Jesse.
7: Uh, yeah. So I've done both actually. And, um, so the thing to kind of start with is that um, a lot of the industry standard lights use DMX as a um, data uh, protocol, basically, to control the lights where each light has a individual address. And oh, I should have prefaced this with saying that I'm not a lighting guru. You probably want to find someone like Talak uh, Lopez-Waterman to go deeper with lighting, but. Basically, um, there is a relatively newer uh, protocol called ArtNet, which allows the DMX information to travel over a network. So what you can do is uh, get an interface like the ENTEC, E-N-T-E-C, interface that basically takes that uh, network information and sends it out to uh, DMX lights. So once you have that on your network, you can use things like companion or any of the free uh there's tons of them like lighting applications for your iPad. Um the one that I've used is was, was called Vibrio, um, but there's a bunch of them out there. And uh basically then you're you're sending your uh you, you connect your either your app or on companion, um you use uh you know generic artnet. But you're looking for that uh, ArtNet interface and just to say that ArtNet itself can actually contain multiple DMX universes so one DMX universe having 512 channels um, when you choose the ArtNet interface that you're using that can support one or more DMX universes, so depending on the complexity and the number of lighting channels that you need. Um, So maybe that's TMI, but uh, that's an answer. Keely, have you tried any of the apps?
2: What I've tried is using Keyboard Maestro in conjunction with my Stream Deck app. So I have programmed one of those macros that clicks on the image so if I can one of the shortfalls I find of the Sidious Link app is that the menu, the menus aren't very elaborate, and using menus and hotkeys through there is a much more reliable way to invoke macros. But I have tried using uh, clicking on particular areas, and I went through, and I probably spent about four hours one day just trying to invoke uh, the the right combination of clicks in the right parts of actual visual representations of the menu in order to use just that little light behind me. And I got it working for about three repetitions and then it started failing and I gave up. But if anybody has any other uh, ideas about how to use Keyboard Maestro more effectively in this setting, I'd love to hear it as well. And maybe we can take that into uh, after hours when, when we're ready to go.
1: Next question. Xander Snell from Miami says, how do you best convince senior executives that they should join in rehearsals for an event with all the other speakers and presenters? I frequently see reluctance to come to
0: rehearsals and or perform their talk before the event. I can't wait to hear our answers on this one. Go ahead, uh, Nigel and Dr. Clark.
3: So I think the reason that senior execs don't go to things is because they think it's going to be a waste of their time, either because they're arrogant and they don't think they need it, or their experience of going to these things has been poor and disorganized. So if you really want someone there, there's a number of things I think you should do. First of all, you make sure you plan the rehearsal time from the very start, from the very first run through. If they're a fairly senior exec, they have an EA, a chief of staff, an assistant, or somebody that manages their life they need to be convinced to make sure that their senior exec goes to the session. And if you're running the event or if you're doing the technology or the production behind it, uh, you may not be the right person. The person who is the executive sponsor at the company, assuming there it's a big enough company that it has it, needs to be the one working with the EA to make sure that the senior exec turns up at the right time in the right place. And a successful EA can reschedule a senior exec's calendar really easy. When the person gets there, you need to make sure you are ready for them. If they stand around, if it looks like you don't know what you're doing, and of course stuff happens, I get that, but if you're not prepared for them, then you are reinforcing the experience that this is a bad use of their time. The other thing, if the rehearsal is two or three days before, that exec may not have actually gone through that content, may actually not have learned it, may not have whatever process they do to consume and uh, send it out, they may not be all the way through it. So don't make them practice something they're not ready for. Focus on blocking, focus on where you want them to stand and they're in and they're out, and trust that they're any senior exec because they know what they're doing in the middle bit. That's my thoughts. I mean, lots of folks have weighed in on this. Go ahead, Dr. Clark.
10: My thought was, to build on what Nigel has said, um, is to uh, make the case to at least the the most senior of the executives. Don't try to herd all the cats at the same time, um, but convert the king or queen. Um, And in part, uh, an argument can be made that, well, people like Steve Jobs rehearsed, and uh, his presentations are famously uh, effective. And uh, other examples could be held up that um, a rehearsed presentation has the kind of impact that you really want to have. And it's a way of exerting leadership, uh, expressing leadership to the others involved in the the presentation. That would be my pitch. In terms of convincing Jesse
7: yeah, uh, many of the senior executives probably think that they don't need to actually rehearse their content or conversation or anything like that, so from the production perspective, we're thinking about the tech and where they're going to be standing and where they need to be at a certain time, so you know we can try as best as we can to to have them show up for things by um, maybe just bringing them in. Um, over video conferencing or something for a meeting or talking to their their assistant, but really need to prepare, uh, you know, do the best we can and, you know, be prepared in case they can't offer any time. And so they can just roll in at the last second. You have a mic, you have their marks and anything they need printed out, um, things like that if they're showing up in person. Uh, But, you know, another way to potentially convince someone or, uh, you know, uh, get them uh, working with you, I guess, as far as the content and stuff and preparing in that way is to say, you know, you're doing something different than a standard Zoom meeting and uh, try to um, highlight that and maybe also mention that if you have other folks already on board at that senior executive level, hey, we've already got these other folks that are showing up. Can you show up as well to be part of that team? Thanks the second reference to peer pressure I think you might be on to something good Courtney yeah
4: if, we're, if it's a live presentation uh, with a teleprompter especially or or just if they're doing a regular tele, uh, you know uh, presentation that they've memorized and are using a slide deck or a keynote uh, uh, deck of slides that they have to interface with it's always best to rehearse them right before the event itself maybe the hour before it starts. Uh, we, We always have our full technical crew come in, teleprompter operator, all the slide AV people, the lighting, everyone to do a rehearsal at least two hours before the event starts and be ready to rehearse two hours before they open doors to the event. That way the uh, executive can go in, they can run through their speech, they can see where the teleprompters are going to be, they can see what lights are going to be in their eyes, they know uh, where the slides are going to be and you know where to refer to things, and if they're going to have confidence monitors down front. So um, they'll be more comfortable if they go in and, and get a chance to see uh, all the AV stuff set up and what the room is going to look like and how they're going to look uh, in the room if they're going to be on uh, iMag, etc. So uh, I always like to rehearse right before, and even if they don't do their whole speech or their whole presentation, they'll come in. They'll they'll you'll put up their speech on the prompter. They'll do you know four or five paragraphs until they're comfortable with how everything's running, and then they can go away and you know uh, do some PR work right before the event starts and uh, work the crowd. So and they also get a chance sometimes to see the rehearsals of the other executives or presenters, and so it it gives them a chance to. Uh, Uh, see what they're going to be put into the middle of.
0: Good. Mitchell?
6: Yeah, all great advice. And uh, one of the things I try to do anytime I've got a CEO or head of state or something that uh, requires uh, that type of authority, I try to convince them one-on-one at some point prior to all of this stuff going on that my job is to make them look as good. uh, un, uh, unaware of what's going on around them. So I would probably take them around, uh, the studio and the and the, uh, uh, the theater situation and explain everything that's going on and work them through it. And if they decide that they want to come in later on, uh, as part of the, uh, the, the whole group, they're going to be that much more in command of the situation because nobody wants to look like they don't or aren't, aren't comfortable in those situations. So uh, I think they appreciate the fact that uh, you go, go take the extra steps to make sure that uh, they aren't uh, surprised by anything and that they're very comfortable around their uh, their employees because they don't want to
10: look dumb. Go ahead, Dr. Clark. One more thought, which is um, if a rehearsal is um, well before the uh, performance, then uh, it might be the first time that the executive... Is actually reading or delivering his or her speech out loud, and often uh, that reveals some uh, ways in which it could be streamlined a bit—shorter uh, sentences, for example—or um, just hearing yourself say it um, reveals ways in which the second delivery uh, can could be even better. So I think that would be a a pitch to make that. um, And it wouldn't take it would accomplish the other things that the other uh, panelists have said, which is um, becoming familiar with the space and the the uh, context. Next question.
1: Morgan Price from Victoria, British Columbia. Do panelists have any experience using the Blackmagic Studio 4K Pro cameras? Thoughts? How well do they mix and match with the black magic pocket cinema 6k
8: yeah they match really well because they're with the same family and plus you have the additional controls inside of the software control panel to get them perfectly on what you're going to have variations in is uh, because it's a a different sensor and you have different lens families Uh, if you do lens for lens they're they're going to match you could get them dead on but uh, where you will notice things uh, occurring differently is in low light situations because the larger S35 Super 35 sensor of the 6K is going to give you just that much more sensitivity, and then just the lens selection and the the bokeh. Like when I swapped my red into this, so I'm using a, a Micro Four Thirds camera right now, and those those little sparkles that you see um, on this side. Uh, they appear much larger with the, with a the full frame sensor, so it's, it's cool to have that that look, but know that it, if you're, you're cutting between cameras with the same lenses it's just going it's going to appear a little bit different, but you could use that to effect and the other thing is that if you're using them in production uh, micro four thirds lenses are very only a few like three lenses that have the power zoom, so you got those on demands um, but the, your, your range is very limited with those that lens family of micro four thirds. Uh, cheap i mean really expensive glass but man it you're, you're really limited the other thing is with that camera you do have the ability to uh hit program which will give you the, the uh the program that's going out so if you are doing like we do here with multiple uh boxes Uh, you know, a two-up or a three-up, there's this button right here that says program that's super handy. So you can see as the person shooting, you can see if you need to frame up a little bit tighter or left or right. So it's really handy if somebody's not on comms yelling in your ear saying, hey, square up. That's about all I got on that one.
0: It's a fantastic advice, guy, about uh, matching the lenses uh, do you find that matching the brand or the class or is
8: it yeah both the way? brand yeah, the brand and the class isn't like on the canon uh red versus gold series you if you do a fifty and a fifty they're going to look really, really close it's when you start going different families, especially vintage class, like right now i'm using a lens from the seventies yeah, can you believe that this lens that I'm on right now is from the seventies is a nikon uh 24 to 75 2.8 so it's old uh, but it still has a great look
0: thank you for that guy and thanks morgan for the question let's go to our next question
1: douglas carmichael is up next after finally after finally setting up my new mac i've decided to move towards a more professional focused workflow focusing on one or two main digital audio workstations instead of daw hopping Since I'm staying with the Mac, would Logic be a good choice for a linear tape-style digital audio workstation?
0: Go ahead, Courtney.
4: Well, Logic would be good if you're going to, you know, stay within your own realm. But if you're going to want to learn a professional, I'd say start to learn Pro Tools. And Pro Tools, I think, just recently came out with a M1, M2 native beta uh, 22-12, I think. So if you want to learn you know The standard of the industry is going to be Pro Tools that's used in most recording studios uh, and, and professional recording situations for television shows and so on. So um, learn that, and if you can wrangle yourself a purchase of that and the hardware is uh, going to be compatible hopefully fully in the future, it's currently in beta, I would start moving to that um, and uh, learn that because that's never going to let you down, I don't think.
0: Let's go to our next question.
4: Jonathan
1: Kearney from Liverpool, UK. I use Zoom for weekly student group sessions. I'm keen to offer a persistent open space for all of my students to drop in, a bit like after hours. Discord doesn't quite work. Technically, how does the after hours 24-7 Zoom space work? Go ahead, Kayleigh.
2: Can you tell I'm going to take umbrage at the whole statement that Discord doesn't quite work? I should actually just ask the question, what it is about Discord that doesn't work? Because for me, Discord is the perfect after hours sort of, sorry, not to, not to convert that term, but it's the perfect after an event. Place to meet in terms of the informality of being able just to click on a voice channel, hop in there and off you go. So it might just be a misunderstanding of feature sets and that sort of thing, because you've got the ability to share your screens, you've got the cameras, you've got audio, you've got all the full moderation, you've got an embedded text and chat, which is persistent and that entire channel can just stay around and be available 24 seven so that is an alternative but i'll let jeffrey powers speak to how uh zoom is so effective for this
5: god jeffrey well, after hours in with uh, office hours is basically just a community effort of uh, of keeping Zoom open. Uh, you have to set people that that can actually start the meeting. Although you can also set Zoom, so if you uh, where anybody that can join in, all of a sudden becomes the uh, becomes the primary until somebody else uh, comes in. Somebody can take it over. And uh, and have the admin privileges to that, uh, but with with after hours, it's just we've got a group of people that sit there and uh, and they monitor it and and uh, you know making sure that everything's happening, uh, everybody's uh, everybody's doing what they need to do, and not uh, trying to do anything bad. Uh, so if you can put that type uh, type of system together, that's great. But uh, other than that, uh, set some managers and uh, and. run it that way. And Keeley, to your
0: knowledge, is there a uh, video call time limitation on Discord?
2: No, there is no limit. It can stay open all the time. And if your server is boosted appropriately, there is a very... Uh, capacious limit to how many people can pop in. They've also just upgraded the stages channels, which allow you to do more of a webinar style controlled speakers can be invaded to the stage and, and, uh, put back off the stage style of presentation. But the voice channels, they just stay open. And that's exactly what I do in my communities to allow exactly this kind of spontaneous gathering and sharing of community.
0: Fantastic. All right, let's go to our final question. Last question for the first hour.
1: Douglas Carmichael says, after falling in love with the performance of Apple Silicon, I've been debating between a 14 or 16-inch MacBook Pro coming from a 15-inch 2017 MacBook Pro. Could a 14-inch MacBook Pro be workable with an external monitor or keyboard for mobile audio workflows with a bit of resolve? Go Kelly.
2: Doesn't take a lot of resolve. That's exactly the setup that I have. So my 14 inch MacBook Pro is just here to the side and I attach uh, any kind of monitors. And I think that's one of the big bonuses of the Pro model family over the airs is how many uh, extra displays that you can attach. And I found that the 16 inch, I did give it a try. It was just simply too large to bring around and especially, uh, taking it on a flight was just entirely too cumbersome. I still like to be able to fold it out in spontaneous situations and not feel like I've got an albatross sitting on my lap. So I think the 14 inch is a great solution. And the quality of the screen is just so good. I don't think you, pardon me, I don't think you really miss that extra size.
0: Um, well, after doing some detective work, I noticed that resolve is capitalized, Douglas. So perhaps you're meaning DaVinci Resolve, in which case I could uh, attest that all of the uh, M1 Max and above are pretty well optimized for DaVinci. So fantastic! I love that pun. Love, love throwing it in there. Well, we have reached the end of our first general hour of questions. What we're moving in directly now into is our education hour. Dave Trotman's here to take us through that. Dave, what do you got for us today?
9: Well, what I have is a distillation of a booklet that I was asked to make with a colleague of mine when we were helping people learn to do presentations. And we got to the point where we had collected a list of how many things can happen during your preparation, your delivery, and your your venue, that uh, we made a little booklet. So I'm gonna go through some of the points that this booklet brought forward, and it has, with it, some strategies of how how to overcome some of the limitations that you'll find doing a presentation. So, first up is to know the venue. Uh, if you get a chance, not always available because some venues are constantly in use, or some boardrooms are uh, out of out of your reach, and you have to have permission to get in them. I had a deputy minister's boardroom and uh, had to be you know helping people prepare for that, and uh, we weren't always able to get in there, even if the Deputy Minister wasn't there, you weren't allowed to use the boardroom, and we had to wait a week or so before we'd get in. But what you want to do is get yourself into the environment, see where the audience is, how far away everybody is, if you're going to hear the questions, uh, look at how much of the projection you have, what the controls on, say, a pedestal or a a lectern have in them, and have someone who's technically proficient in it uh, be available to show you how all the keys work, and, and where everything goes and how to plug your laptop or any devices you brought with you into it. And then find out whether, you know, as I do, sometimes I have a remote so I can walk around the, the venue and talk to people from all different angles and click from a remote and see if it works in the room. Uh, lots of people have clickers that are RF-based or um, um, infrared, and uh, there's limitations as to where you can go. Uh, standing near windows, you can't use your uh, infrared one. Uh, but if it's RF or something, then there's a limit in distance, that sort of thing. All right, I think uh, uh, pe- TJ wanted
1: to weigh in. TJ? Well, I was just curious if um, you were talking about it sounds like you were actually talking about maybe doing some rehearsal in that venue. And, and I guess, I'm curious how, how many times how often what kind of duration you would recommend for that type of preparation or rehearsal?
9: In terms of rehearsal, separate from just being familiar with the venue, the venue visit is to see what you're going to have to bring. So if they offer you a computer and the capacity of it is good enough for your presentation, you have run it, then you know you can use that computer and it's going to be fine, unless it crashes the day before you arrive. Uh, doing rehearsal, yeah, that's a whole different thing, whereas if you're one of many three, four people presenting at the conference or whatever, and you're going to be in this room, uh, the setup may be different for you than it is someone else. Uh, In terms of doing rehearsals as such for seeing if you're heard or if everything's going to work and can you hear the questions as they come to you, uh, that's a debate between you and the people sponsoring you or bringing you in for a presentation. And if they insist on a rehearsal, absolutely, make yourself available. But in terms of my need for doing it, uh, it would depend, I guess, on whether or not the setup is going to be instantaneous or I've got a half hour before the crowd arrives. Uh, I can do a rehearsal myself, walk through all the slides, check all my clicks, see if my videos run, all that stuff. But yeah, it, it is nice to have a rehearsal time, and in the venue itself. Uh, and sometimes your client wants to see your slides and, and sort of preview with you whether or not they like what you're talking about or what you're showing is you know um, comfortable with them. But I've also learned uh, to move on from from your question. Uh, Unless Josh has something he wants to add.
0: Sure, I'd like to weigh in. Dave, um, sometimes we don't have the um, luxury of a walkthrough in order to do the planning phase. You mentioned about a rehearsal, maybe the only time that we have. So pre-planning, have you used maybe some virtual tools, some uh, camera walkthroughs to get a lay of the land?
9: Uh, Not in my experience, no. Uh, Nothing better than actually being in the room. And if I can't get into the room, then I have to plan even more for the room not accommodating what my needs are. Uh, Just last week, I did a presentation at the University of Alberta. I could not use their pedestal computer. I carry my own laptop. And I had to spend a little time behind their computer finding out how their little system was feeding to the projectors. And then I just bypassed the whole thing. I found the HDMI connection to the wall, uh, disconnected it, put my HDMI connection in there, put my laptop on the pedestal, and away we went. And I just unplugged their system and plugged in mine. But that's not always desirable. And in some cases, their computer might be better than yours. And so all you do is put your USB stick in like all the students do. Um, Sometimes when you're viewing a venue, the person helping you in has no idea how it works. They're just helping you see the room, and that can be difficult because they can't answer your questions about, well, what if I want to switch to a, a document presenter? And knowing where the cables go or what buttons to push or how to power it down, uh, how to get the lights on and off or close blinds, if they don't know, then, you know, you've got to kind of source it out yourself, make a few notes about what you think you'll do before you set up in the, in the room. Uh, I also plan for not having available power. That is where you're presenting is too far from the cable that you want to plug into, or the plugs aren't available to you because they're plugging in many other things and they don't want you to unplug anything. So I always plan to be on battery and uh, have enough uh, charge for that presentation and make sure I have that all up beforehand. I also sometimes have to prepare for having my own projector. it on a table set it up in front of a wall or a a screen and use my projector more than the one they have and i find sometimes if i'm in older buildings and and in my work i'm in often other people's community halls uh, they put a projector in back in 1987 it's a four by three it has low resolution and my presentation is you know nine by sixteen so now we're uh in conflict and so i have to know if I'm going to bypass their projector, or if I'm going to modify my presentation to suit their projector and its resolution. Uh, I bring my own cables, uh, and maybe I'll not use them, but I always have, for my machine anyway, I always have a VGA, which allows me to, you know, put my USB-C over here, and then just string it out to whatever VGA is there. and. A lot of VGA is very high resolution, so you don't have to worry about it'll detect properly what the resolution is. And if I'm working with any kind of uh, uh, HDMI, I have my own HDMI uh, 2 connector, and then I know my machine will connect to whatever's on the other end. And I don't have to worry. Usually, if HDMI is on the projector, chances are it's going to take whatever I send it. It's not going to be an issue but sometimes the cable run for an HDMI is much farther. And we've been talking about that earlier today, how far you can go with HDMI. And I've had one installation where on the wall, there was a HDMI and it went up through to the roof, but the projector never ever worked in HDMI. So then I would switch back to uh, using VGA and it was just as adequate for that installation. I also have a direct USB to USB adapter so that my, If I send USB to the machine that's uh, sending it up to the projector, I often can get uh, at least a reasonable image out of my USB. Um, I don't expect any projectors now to have C on them, so I have the A type to that. And as well, of course, you're always going to have to have questions, and uh, you have to work out with the people who have sponsored you whether you're going to field the questions or if there's some chairperson or facilitator who's going to point to people and say, what's your question? So figure that out. Or if you're going to have to do it by yourself, plan for that in your presentation structure. Uh, will you hand out things? Will you give out a pile of paper? Uh, that is, that's sometimes necessary because of the way some operations are. They insist that you have your, uh, your whole deck on paper so that the students can walk out with it. And, uh, I guess I would uh, suggest, and this comes to preparing for the slideshow mostly, uh, but you have to have enough time between visiting the venue and your presentation to make all the modifications you think you're going to have to do f- because of the situation you're going to find yourself in. Seems like you should also, be
0: very acquainted with your uh, with your venue uh, and get get to know it. But um, yeah, what happens when the worst goes wrong and? Things go wrong.
9: Yeah. Being prepared for failure. I I was also going to suggest that if you don't like the microphone they're using, see if you can bring your own and use it like one of the uh, head mounted mics and bypass their sound system and and run your own mic. Uh, The computer they offer may not be capable of running your show. That is, if they ask you to bring a USB stick in, and they want you to plug it in, and suddenly either the file format doesn't match, either the files are too big, or the illustrations didn't link, that sort of thing, and so you may have a computer that won't read your USB stick, and so this is why I often remind people that I come with my own computer, and that's going to make it go. But the other failure is that the wiring control panel that you're asked to use, the, the Crestron or whatever is installed in the deck, uh, it fails. It doesn't work. It, it won't go to the PC that it says it will. Or the, there's a two-part click that the person only knows about the first one, they assume the projector's on and that sort of thing. That can go wrong. Uh, the screen may not be visible to all participants. I had one where some people in the room couldn't even see the screen. And I thought, oh, okay, so how are we gonna accommodate that? It may fail in that respect. Uh, I also had where, you know, when we reviewed the room, where everything was fine, but by the time the presentation happened, we had sunlight just bursting into the room. And there was very little that we could do about that. So we had to kind of uh, put up a whiteboard on wheels and uh, and use it as a block near the window so that we could at least shade the end where the projection is. Uh, often you can't be heard in the back. That can be a thing where you're asked to present without reinforcement and just like a lecture in a classroom. Uh, But if it's a big enough venue, you have to find a way to be heard in the back. Uh, And sometimes, of course, I've wandered into the back and and talked from there while running my show remotely. Okay, I think Um, uh,
0: Keely wanted to jump in. Keely, do you have any other uh, failure modes you'd like to weigh in on?
2: Sure. I think for me, the biggest determinant of whether you can recover from failure is how you interpret that event as a speaker. So if you get very flustered, if you express your apologies, if you go on and on, oh, I'm really sorry, this isn't working. And okay, we're just going to take a couple seconds. All of that transfers your anxiety to the audience who normally really Don't care either way. They just want to hear the story. They want to hear the material. So if you can continue to roll with the punches, as it were, and obviously this is an issue of experience as somebody who's been live streaming for three and a half years now, I can't even tell you how many times things have gone completely wrong on my shows. I've been shut down for copyright violations. I've had all my tech fail. I've had audio go off and my audience now is at the point where they just find it fun it's just part of the show and they feel like they can actually help me out so that would be my second point is try to engage the audience in a a, a recovery mission where you say okay this video isn't showing up do you guys have an instance where this has happened to you tell me about it can you describe it to me and and go around and find somebody if somebody sort of sort of even perks up their interest you just shove a microphone in their face and go with that And that recovery is what makes the entire talk just continue to flow.
9: Mm -hmm. No, I get that. And that's actually something that's happened to me a couple of times where there were so many failures five or 10 minutes before showtime. When the people came in, I had already decided not to do the show and tell. I'm going to give a talk. I know the subject matter enough to be able to answer any question and talk to them. And as I, you know, Alex often says, he gets up in front of a crowd and says, so what do you want to talk about? And that is as good a presentation. Sure, it's not reinforced by all my illustrations or all my cute quotes, but you're still getting value for money and the people are going to engage with you directly. Yeah, don't, don't use failures or uh, errors or difficulties as an excuse to delay. Just go right past it and go to the next thing and accommodate it as you can. If the computer's not working, well, then we just won't use that computer. And if we're not getting the projector to go and it keeps flinking out because it's overheated or something, well, then we'll just not use the projection and we'll just talk. Uh, Dave, I know we have uh,
0: a bunch of different uh, topics we'd like to, to get to, but before we yeah. leave this topic, um, I'm curious of how you might coach your your crew. To have a uh, to put a good face forward when things maybe are not going optimal, is there any tips that you like to give people to make sure that your crew doesn't crack
9: whenever um, something <laughs>
0: unexpected happens?
9: I think Keeley had it right. It's experience. The number of people who've been through uh, things like this and and have had failure, they know how to just stay calm, work to the problem, keep at the problem, and then get it fixed. And sure, the audience may be a little upset or unsettled or wondering why things are delayed and why are we not started yet. But when it starts, that all disappears if the, you have a compelling presentation. Great. I I normally don't to, coach other people unless it's a TV production. So I, I don't do it in presentations. Sorry
10: to interrupt. Let's go to no,
0: Chris that's okay. yeah, and Chris. then Guy, and then we'll wrap up this topic.
10: Yeah. I wanted to suggest that um, presenters think of their presentation as a lead into a conversation. And the conversation can start almost immediately, or it can um, be uh, can follow uh, opening remarks. But um, a lot of the uh, challenges that uh, Dave has been talking about uh, suggest uh, That the only only. model is a an uninterrupted presentation highlighted with uh, technology and uh, it might be good to have two parallel plans. One is uh, for the presentation of the topic and one or two big ideas, but then as soon as possible to migrate that to be coming a conversation which tends to uh, create more engagement with your audience, which uh, is what we're all about. Mm -hmm. That guy?
8: Yeah. Yeah, assuming you're a subject matter expert and already know your stuff, then you got that part taken care of. But if something goes wrong, it's always nice to have before the presentation to have walked the room, introduced yourself to a few people meet them and so that if something does go wrong you can either use a story or some humor you can say like so bob in the front row he shoots uh wedding videos and bob can you tell us about the last uh you mind sharing one of the the last experiences you had at a venue and then all of a sudden people turn and look and they're engaged and that might buy you some time to go fix whatever needs to be fixed so i always like to introduce myself to a few members in the audience especially the people that are sitting right in the front row and then i have somebody that i can look at and i can go to in case i do need to pull in, because you you could tell, too, if people are nodding off, it's always nice to, you know, uh, to throw it to somebody in the crowd and get some interaction. And then people, like, sit up a little straighter because they're like, oh, man, he might call on me. Nice. And
0: we want to get to some of our other questions there. So, Dave, what happens when things go right?
9: Well, uh, your computer runs the show. The projector looks great. Everyone can hear you. You finish on time and everyone loves your presentation, and you get free lunch. Uh, That's the sort of thing that happens when everything works. Uh, When it doesn't work, uh, it's like... uh, well, Actually, uh, years ago, I was sent to a computer conference to talk about the innovations we were doing, and uh, I attended a session which was the last session on the last day in the mid-afternoon of the whole conference, three-day conference. And it was by the War College in the US uh, military. And I was very keen on this, and I, I attended with all of six other people. And we got into this huge lecture hall, and at the front of the stage, there were these three guys in uniform, and they were standing in front of an overhead projector. And I kind of went, hmm, this is interesting. It's a computer conference, and these guys didn't bring a computer. Well, the head guy to began the introduction. He says, we didn't know anything about Calgary. We didn't know if the university would have any technology at all, and so we planned for the least uh, difficult, and they brought slides and had a pretty good idea that there would be an overhead projector somewhere on a university campus. And then they apologized for not bringing the whole three-dimensional presentation they were planning on doing. They did the whole thing with slides. It was just as effective. We all got the same message. We all got the same stuff. And because there's only six of us, of course, we were all in the front row, and we can interact with these guys much longer than they ever expected to. So that was how everything worked out for them, because they had planned for failure, because the military does that, does that very well. I've worked in military and, and with the Defense Department three or four times. And, yeah, redundancy and failure is always in the plan.
0: All right, Dr. Clark, so, uh, let's get your comment.
9: Uh, yeah. None of my
10: presentation uh, audiences ever complained if I finished early, but many complained if I don't start on time. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's one of the things that uh, makes a successful presentation a su- successful presentation is you start when it's scheduled to start, but end a little bit early. And mm-hmm. uh, everybody's grateful.
9: Yes,
0: they really appreciate finish. it on time so let's go to our next topic Of well i was gonna get
9: john rehearsed. snyder's question in uh john snyder had a question here about rehearsing
1: so john snyder from reno nevada asks how many times should you rehearse prior to an important presentation
3: um
9: about seven times yeah i run through it myself both for timing and for being able to know how long a subject or an illustration should be on the screen uh, and whether or not I'm even going to refer to anything and just keep talking and let the slides go. Um, I've also had where, you know, we're going to take a break in the middle and I have to do a first half and a second half. So, yeah, I find myself uh, rehearsing about seven times. I don't rehearse in the venue seven times. I I sort of work it out here and then take it with me and I've got a good plan. Um, Keely.
2: Yeah, I found that seven is a nice number. It's almost as many times as possible and time constrictions are going to be your your biggest uh, force function, as it were. And I think in that initial panic, I, I think at least three times before you actually get on with timing and all those sort of things. And also to rehearse with your backup, if you have a different delivery method. For example, if you were delivering a keynote presentation with your videos embedded, but you also had a backup just in case that the videos don't show in there, also being able to practice with your backup method is very, very effective. So I think there there is no there is no limit to how many times you can really present and you will get tired of yourself before you actually practice enough times.
9: Yeah. I'm the same way. Yeah. If your video is not going to play, then just Go to the next slide. Don't even explain it. Uh TJ?
1: So I think it, it sort of you know, to Mickey's uh popular answer, it depends. Um the uh, some people can like see something and like and and like pick it up really quick and others like me gotta work it like, you know, ten, twenty times or more, some you know, just to get your timing down and and I think it's important to get to a point where you feel um, and sound natural. And, and I find having somebody watch you to be able to critique you is really key here because if you're doing a presentation, you may not realize you're just really talking super fast and you're just getting through it all. And okay, and you need somebody to say, whoa, hey, you need to slow down. You need to relax a little bit or, or maybe speed up a little bit if you're just talking really slow. So having somebody critique your presentation um, while you're rehearsing is helpful.
9: Absolutely, that's an excellent point. All right, let's go to our next point then. Your show. Well, A presentation, of course, is meant to support what you're speaking about, so it shouldn't overtake the show. Uh, you're there for all the knowledge, expertise, experience, and, and the service you provide. Uh, I have been counseled quite a bit about better presentation style, and in fact, recently I used two rounds at after hours to have other people critique my uh, my slides. Uh, Titles and headings and famous quotes are not necessary. Let your presentation illustrate but not explain. Uh, Bullet points are for engineers. And uh, there was a link in the education discord for David Phillips, and he recommends six objects per slide, objects including if you have a title. Uh, Special transition effects are for salespeople and not for everyone. Text can create confusion if it doesn't match what you're saying. And clip art is for learning to lay out things or as placeholders, but it's not for your show. Uh, Of course, mid-journey is beginning to have some sort of effect there because it's kind of a clip art generator, so you might try that for a while and see what your audience reaction is. Your contact information should be at the start and the end. Don't forget that, even though you get introduced or people know from the paperwork that you're next, uh, you really want to make sure they have your contact information. Uh, I always try to acknowledge the source of the artwork and photos I used to illustrate. If I didn't shoot them myself or uh, make the drawings or graphics myself, I always say I have this guy who helped me do this, and his name is. Uh, but I like to take my own pictures for illustrations. So if I've planned a brand new presentation, part of my plan is to set aside time to take pictures of everything I'm going to explain, and then the illustrations are specific to what I know the picture is. And I can take a picture with the right thing rather than somebody else's picture and then have to crop and redo it. So let's uh, move to using video. Uh, video is tricky and always has there. been.
0: Oh, let's go to our yeah. video. Then. All right.
9: Yeah. OK. Sorry, I'm, I keep jumping on you, Josh, and I'm going to apologize for that. No worries. We'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah this goes back to you know checking your venue but your cpu has to match the uh load that is going to be uh created by the video if your cpu doesn't run the video in a projector but it runs really great on your laptop you have to find out about that and that's helpful for this whole rehearsal on venue thing where you take your stuff put put it through the paces with what you're going to need to do and if it hiccups or gets jittery or stops in the middle of the playback, you know that your CPU is is overloaded. And and this was early for uh, Lenovo's and Dell's back in the 90s when I was doing this. Uh, A lot of laptops were very underpowered for things that required second monitors and videos. So more of the modern machines, this is less of a problem all the time. But you always want to test your video before the people get there. And be ready to ditch it if it's not working. Uh, I sometimes have an alternate freeze frame or something which I can substitute in and just skip that slide and put another slide in. Uh, Build different versions of the video for lower stream rates. Uh, This is for people who know how to do various versions, but you may want to make a smaller aspect ratio. You may want to make a uh, lower stream rate and maybe a fuzzier video for the purposes of a presentation. If it's absolutely necessary, they see motion. So this has happened for me when presenting to 3D animators, for instance. I had to reduce the rates and and have all this stuff sort of shrunk a bit so that the playback worked because we were going to need to see the video play. And as we were talking about, you know, practice and being on time, one of the things that happens with a video is you explain the video before you play it and then you play it and then you talk about it afterwards. And we often forget that that's the time you didn't account for. You had a four minute clip. You think it's only going to be four minutes. It's going to be eight. So actually having the first part and the last part added into the cost of doing it. And this comes up in rehearsal if you're gonna do an introduction. In your rehearsal and when someone's watching you, they can see that you're taking too long to get to the video. Just play the video. Um, Never bring video from the internet. You will likely not get the bandwidth you're used to, or you might have some hiccup in the uh, sharing of network or network traffic bumping into what you're doing. So always have it in the, the uh, source and not bring it in from the internet. Okay. That introduces our next subject.
0: Well, let's, so we have, a, I think uh, we have a question from Douglas Carlos. Carmichael. Great. Okay. Douglas
1: Carmichael wants to know to guard against being shut down for copyright violations. Can you send your streaming host documentation of proper licensing for said music or content?
9: If yeah, you have a license for it, sure. Keely.
2: Yeah, I think that this gets a little off sort of strictly presentation, but it's a little more complicated than sending things to your streaming host. For example, if you're showing your presentation on YouTube and you're live streaming it or it's a recorded presentation what's happening is that as your material is being added to youtube there is an automatic scraper going on in the background that is looking at your content and comparing it to anything else that any company has uploaded to their system it might not not even be something that they have shown on their own channels but it could be in the background all that content is available for youtube for example to look at and compare to what you're providing So in the middle of a presentation, if there is a match of that content, what YouTube seems to currently be doing is that they will black out your stream, you will still be live, the stream will still be going on, but they will just black that segment out. And if it's a recorded video, they'll just omit that part and then your video will become what's called demonetized. So you would not be able to generate any revenue from that entire video so it's an automatic system on the back end. What you actually have to do is get whitelisted by the original content rights holder so that your content doesn't trip up that algorithm or it gets skipped over by the YouTube scraping mechanism. So that's just for that example. There's a lot of other different contexts and different systems, but. Generally, you just want to try to avoid it as much as possible. As somebody who's got a lot of experience in this area, it is a big problem and a big headache. I only push through it because it's absolutely necessary to fairly use content for educational purposes.
9: It's great to have Kaylee do that because I never use anybody else's videos. I shoot my own. And I, I'm, a, I'm a shooter and editor, so for me, it's easy. For most people, it's not. But even for teachers, if they're going to put some, something in, they they may as well shoot it themselves with a handy cam and then put the video in themselves. It's much easier than having to deal with any of the rights issues. Uh, and certainly, you, you might have a video you really want to use, and then they won't give you the rights. So you really put yourself in a, in a tough situation there.
8: And let's go to Guy Cochran. Yeah, yeah. you can just create a live event and push through uh, for testing. You can just push through any content and you can see if, if it's for YouTube, their trust and safety team will, will uh, they have some stuff in the back end that just obviously scans it. its AI It just basically says, is this like this other one? I've worked with some influencers where uh, we were able to override like completely whitelist that and it does work. It, it's pretty amazing when you're able to push uh, out of stream, but we had 11,000 people on and it was a big event. Google is helping finance it, so uh, there are there are ways around the system. But you got to just be up the chain to be able to get that stuff pulled. So, like Dave was saying, use your own if, if possible. But if you do have something that you're kind of iffy on, I would err on the side of caution and not use it because, or run run the tests on on a on a stream that uh, you know you just pop one open and and just push it through. Let the content go through, and it'll tell you. You'll, you'll get an email pretty quick. All right, thank you for that, our panel.
0: And um we're going to move to our next topic of internet connections. Dave, I know that you don't really have a show if you don't have internet.
9: <laughs> well, I guess I'm talking about uh, generally presentations to a live audience. So, I, I'm not focusing so much on a on a Zoom call kind of situation because it's a different it's an entirely different presentation environment. Now, The Zoom environment is the one-on-one conversation, and then it's one-to-many. But when you do a mass audience kind of concept, then you're dealing with a different thing entirely. And the more mass audience it is, the more scripting you require to to be able to control the process. I never bring video in from the Internet. I always either capture it, download it, or get somebody to send me a copy on DVD or something that they want me to use. So... um, in the sense that you know, we had the, just had the rights issues thing. Yeah, that, that controls the situation. And also, I want to be able to make sure that only the essentials of the video are there, because not all videos efficiently convey their information. And so, I might need to edit and shorten the whole darn thing. I don't show live web pages. I capture web pages. I, I do screen gra- uh, grabs of everything, and I'll also get screen grabs of the menus so that if I have to page through three or four steps, I'm doing it as slides, I'm not trying to download it. This goes back again to the late 90s when bandwidth wasn't there and web pages didn't load very fast and you were wasting people's time waiting for a page to load. But also that the page is not yours and so you're showing this page uh, without actually being able to navigate it efficiently. Uh, The other thing is, of course, if you know, you're going to have to demonstrate something live on the web because that's the subject you're dealing with. And I had to do that. I had a web page designed for the university that I was pitching and I had to be able to show it worked. And so I had to have a live connection. But outside of that, I would just use uh, screen grabs of web pages. Uh, I worked with a, a government operation that was hiring out a company that was going to handle all their a training of staff using a train management system, and it was an Irish company, and they did a presentation in a boardroom with a big room full of people, and they couldn't connect. And they forgot to install it locally on the server so that they could demonstrate it operating within its own environment, and they hadn't made that arrangement. So they just thought they could do this remotely and show how they were going to manage their data and information and training, and it didn't work, and that was an entire failure. So we'll move to PowerPoint packaging. Um, we've had experiences with this in the past. I'm just going to touch on it because it's a warning to anyone who is using PowerPoint. Keynote, when you make things, copies whatever you're wanting to on, on the screen into a package. And that package is already a, a thing that the Macintosh operating system uses. Uh, These bundles of things that are the document itself, it's called a file, but it's actually a bundle of resources. And every time you drop a picture on Keynote, it's gonna copy it into its bundle and it's there with you when you move it from computer to USB or back again or send it over the internet to somebody. A problem with PowerPoint is that some people are in environments where the resources are on a server somewhere and show up pretty much in any room you're using because you're on the internet or the network, internal network and the LAN. But when you leave and take a USB stick to another location and they're not on the LAN, uh, all of your pictures are missing and all your sound is not playing because uh, it was linked rather than installed. PowerPoint is a way of uh, capturing all this. One of the menu items is to make a package and that way it will connect to the net Drag all the stuff in, copy it in, and make sure you've done that before you walk away with your PowerPoint. And of course, if you're going to preview in a venue, you'll notice when it doesn't work, you've got you know three or four days to figure out how to get it to work. So that's that. That's PowerPoint. I was gonna do a thing of what's in my bag. Its all right? We're moving moving in. Um, yep, okay. I already showed you my cabling. I have some sticky tape because your cables don't always stay where they should, and there may be some traffic there. I always have a spare power supply because I might break or stretch a cord or something might shred. I have, uh, I even carry a package of Kleenexes in case I'm getting sniffles at the time. And one of my favorite things to have in is a flashlight. I often have to go into a box or a cabinet or whatever and I have to find out why the audio is not working or the picture is not working so I have a flashlight which helps me see things and that's that's a nice thing to have. I got this as a gift actually so I was very happy to have that. And uh, of course I use uh, USB sticks where I can and uh, uh, also I'm, I'm getting used to USB with uh, USB-C so i'm starting to get the adapters and cables that would allow me to do anything the other thing that i've done in keynote is that i've run the show from my uh phone uh, keynote allows you to connect to your phone uh, through uh, either wi-fi or bluetooth and then you can wander around the room it's got your notes right on the screen with the slide and then you can just swipe the slides through and it does the keynote presentation um, I do that at my AGMs and, uh, it impresses a lot of people, but it's actually useful for me to stay in contact with the people and not look back at the slides and, uh, have a, a, a monitor that I'm always referring to for my notes. So, uh, having, a, either a, an iPad mini or something, or, uh, an iPhone to run the keynote slides is always fun. And I, I recommend trying it because, uh, it actually works really, really smoothly.
0: I noticed what's not in your bag, Dave, is a laser pointer. I think we've moved past that uh, era of technology, would you say?
9: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now they're dedicated cat tools. So uh, I don't, yeah, Uh, laser pointers. uh, Actually, it's funny because with that, what I just talked about in Keynote, if you put your finger on the screen and hold it, a dot appears in your show, and it's your laser pointer. So if you're using an iPad, it works really well. You've got your slide at the top and your text underneath, and then you touch the slide without clicking it. That's tricky because if you click it, it changes slides. Uh, you touch the slide and hold, and then a dot appears on the projector. And then you can just sort of point to things and, and highlight what your, what your illustration is. Yeah.
0: Jay's cats are on the internet,
8: so they'll be able to find that. Um, mm. Guy, you have some bag topics you like to share? I was just going to ask Dave if he had a list that he might share with uh, everybody, maybe like an Excel or a PDF or a Google Sheets document that uh, to save some of us from going through the, the the trouble. I used to carry a a big list of, and it's a check, double check, triple checked, like in present mm-hmm. inside of the bag. And uh, it saved me uh, numerous times. This was back in the days of carrying like BNC barrels and little odds and ends, S-video adapters to RCA, little things like that that were just show savers. And nowadays it's a, it's a decimator. It's, a, you know, bringing my own internet with the Ethernet jack it, just in case. But, mm-hmm. yeah, there's some crazy stuff that I keep in my bag. But do you have a list, Dave, that you uh, might be able to share?
9: Actually, every situation for me is so different that the list changes as the event prepares. So yeah, I, I could give you uh there's a PDF of what I've just been talking about in the Discord for education. So if you look in I think general and and tips and tricks, uh there's a PDF sitting there, uh which is this this list here that I went through today. Uh but I don't really have a list in my bag. I make a list, um, uh, you know, I'll do so I've got a list going right here for my last one, uh, and, and it's just as needed. I, what I seems
8: to happen is like uh, that tape gets needed at the last minute for something else, and then it exits the bag, and then you go to your gig, and you're like,
9: oh, I left the I tape. I left that I can't believe shame. I left the tape. How could I? That's Brr. right. Yes. Or We're where the to- heck? Is, yeah, why is the battery not working in my flashlight? You know, like that stuff, you got to check before you go, yeah.
0: Respect the items in the bag and sometimes keeping those items in a bag. So a manifest in each mm-hmm. bag of what should be in the bag of, of checking those. And then maybe a preparation of, um, how to, uh, you know, which bags, uh, you may need or which kits you may need might be helpful. Looks like Tony would like to weigh in.
9: Hmm.
11: Hmm.
9: Yeah, I, you just got
8: to be like Jeff Keithley. Did you see the show the other day? You just got to come up with a four transit van, and uh, you know, behind <laughs> that another trailer, and that's your backup. So you bring that's your the truck, primary, here. and then you have the yeah both.
9: Well, we've all seen those lawyers with those wheelie cart briefcases. You know, I I think that's probably what. Tony's looking for I I don't usually I I consider what I'm carrying to be redundant to what I'm going to find on the venue so if I'm in the venue and the connections are all good then I've just got spares in case those have failed between the time I was there and the the date of of doing a presentation so in that sense yeah I'm I'm the backup rather than the the direct connection but I get what you're saying Tony At, at some point you've got to put a limit on it and say well you know I've got three of these things now maybe a fourth is not necessary um I can just work with what I got, or it just won't work. And if it doesn't work, well, that's not a tragedy. We're just going to do a talk instead of a presentation. Um, Keeley had a oh, we're at Chris here. out to Chris Clark.
10: I wanted to circle back to the uh, the content of uh, presentation. It's advice I give um, beginner presenters at um, research conferences, which is. Um, you probably you may run out of time. Uh, beginners tend to want to give more detail than there is time, and of course, that um, if the uh, chair is uh, strict, uh, you'll be cut off uh, because there may be other presenters who need need to start on time. So my advice is. Um, Start your, your presentation with a brief summary of your conclusion. Here's what I want to share with you today. Here's I'm going to make these as assertions at the beginning of my presentation. And if all goes well, I'll be able to make them as substantiated conclusions at the end of the presentation. I think audiences pay the most attention at the beginning. They're trying to figure out, whether you're worth listening to, or where this is going to go, or am I in the right room? And so that's when you should give your your punchline, if you will, say, here's where I think we're going to wind up. This is the important stuff. And then you go through your presentation that documents and contextualizes your your claims and your support for your claims, and you hope and you repeat it at the end if there's time. And that also uh, generates some uh, question asking, perhaps, uh, during your presentation, if the audience has a preview of where you say you're headed. So I would consider that, uh, especially for beginning presenters who are under some kind of a time constraint because there are other presentations in in a conference session, for example. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I love that, what Chris just said.
8: I've done that as well, where you give a summary at the beginning, you tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them what you told them. But the one thing is that you're, audience may be different than what you prepared the presentation for. So they'll tell you if they're, if they're a good audience, they'll let you know, you know, and encourage it. You want to make the presentation a little bit more lively and try to pull people in again. And so by letting them know what they're going to learn by the end, if they go, dude, you're off base, but this is, so sometimes you might have an audience that's more pro or a beginner. And so you want to try to, uh, attached to the, the majority of the audience. But there's going to be, you know, some people that you're just going to be, you know, either too slow for or too fast for, and you want to try and meet them in the middle if you can, but be, be open to letting your audience uh, not derail, but just help steer the conversation more into what they want to hear. Fantastic advice.
0: Uh, we have uh, another question, I believe.
8: Keeley Dunn from Calgary, Alberta wants
1: to know, what alternative presentation software have people used in their talks?
0: Go ahead, Kelly.
2: So I would love to do a little exploration here if anybody else has other things that they've used other than PowerPoint and Keynote. One thing that I experimented with the last time I got out in front of an audience and had the ability to use slides is I used Canva as my method. And I was really impressed with how easy it was for me to construct a presentation And in fact, I was able to share it as a uh, series of images, as a PDF, and I actually could have presented it myself. I could have presented it just here and, you know, gone through if my computer was connected to the actual presentation software. And it was a really nice alternative and it just gave me a little bit of a different look over what the standard sort of PowerPoints and keynotes come across as. I focused more on imagery to evoke emotion, and I thought that was really helpful. And I'm wondering if there's anybody else who's tried something outside of the two boxes that we're so accustomed to.
0: Uh, Dave?
9: Well, I've actually uh, done presentations with just PDF. Uh, A full-screen PDF is a slideshow, and if you structure your PDFs right, Uh, You can go right through the thing from front page to back uh, with your advance key. The other thing in a PDF, of course, is that you can click on a link and jump to something. So you could have a table of contents that are all links and then jump through the presentation in whatever direction you want. Um, PDFs were around just at the beginning of HTML, and they were competing with HTML to be a sort of platform's uh, ignorant or... um, agnostic uh, presentation environment and you could both do it as printed sheets or you could do it as high-res slideshows. So I used to use that. Uh, of course, I'm old enough to have gone back to Claris Works and all that to use their presenter uh, environment. Uh, I haven't actually tried Google, uh, Google pres- presenter or um, show, Google show, perhaps. Uh, I haven't, worked with those, but I've uh, sat in sessions with people who've used them in meetings. So their their re, uh, illustrations and uh, engineering information came up on the, uh, the Google Slides.
0: And, uh, Ken, is there some input from the
11: chat? Well, there is indeed. There's uh, quite a bit of presentation happening over here in chat. Uh, suggestions are for Prezi, P-R-E-Z-I as one opportunity. Sozi is another one, S-O-Z-I, Uh, And uh, one that comes up here is a DIY version, Whiteboards and Telestration. So there's a wide variety of applications, apparently, that are popular. All
0: right. Fantastic. And go Uh, ahead,
9: Well, I'm looking forward to playing with the uh, infinite whiteboard that just came out for the uh, new Macintosh uh, environment Uh, because apparently it's like a brainstorming board or a big mapping board, and it's collaborative. So you could start a presentation, and other people could be remotely participating in it uh, by questions or adding in diagrams of their own. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that applies. And maybe we'll even try it here on after hours or office hours to see how it collaborates uh, with anybody who wants to jump in.
0: All right, fantastic, Dave. Really appreciate you uh, being here and offering all that information about our presentations. Any any final words uh, to close our session?
9: Well, by planning for the worst and it not happening, you have a much happier outcome. And uh, I find that if I if I let the slides go ahead of what I'm saying, um, the audience gets a moment to absorb what I'm going to say. And then I start, uh, I pause quite a bit or shuffle my papers perhaps, uh, when I'm changing the slides. And then I give people a chance to read the whole slide before I go. That was the only thing I was going to add in the, in the, uh, the talk I was giving today.
0: Fantastic. Well, appreciate, um, all of our contribution, all of our panelists for being here uh, to field our questions. We appreciate our back end crew um, that is helping us every day, over a thousand episodes produce this show, all volunteers. <laughs> They're all here because they wanna be here. And um, we wanna also thank our producers for giving us the the fuel to run our show, our questions uh, and guiding us along the way. Um, looking at what's coming up next week um we have several guests professionals eric elper matt marion simon passmore and larry o'connor if you want to know who those people are look at the daily email we have a full write-up in there about our lineup for next week so we appreciate um everyone that's joining in the show we're going to now move into after hours and roll our credits and i will note that we had 1.4 passes around the earth with all the questions that we've had around today. So, we'll see you tomorrow.
9: Thanks everybody. Little apology I guess to the back end that uh I was not putting my hand up, which really confounded the super source. So I'm sorry I left that out of my brain when I started. Um, I'll be better next time. And it's the first time we've tried this format, so we'll get used to it. No worries, Dave. No worries. It's always a learning experience. Saturday Saturday is an experiment. Yes, that's true. Yeah.